Um, how many of you were here for the, the panel discussion of human trafficking or today or yesterday? Okay, a few people. There might be a little bit of overlap, but it is a little different, so I just wanted to warn you. Um, so today, so I am Joy um, Lowe. I'm a pediatrician. I've been a pediatrician for over 20 years, and I've been working in human trafficking um, for about 11 years now. So I'm really excited to be here. I just want to let you know that I want you to learn what you need to learn. So don't feel like you can't interrupt me. Raise your hand if I'm saying something you have a question about. Feel free to just say it. Um, just raise your hand in the middle if you want to, or you can save your question until later. But like I said, I want you to learn what you need to learn. So um, my objectives today are to define the crime of human trafficking, recognize that a child or youth may be a victim of sex or labor trafficking, and identify concrete steps that can be taken just in case you have a suspicion of it. So just a really big caveat, this can be really hard for people. This is a very heavy topic, obviously, and everybody's had their history of their own kind of trauma or experiences. So definitely take care of yourself. If you need to step out, step out. Um, but please, like I said, ask questions because I want you to learn what you need to learn. So I'm going to start with a couple of case studies. Um, this one is Guillermo. Guillermo is 14, and he is from Guatemala. A friend of the family um, has a very successful restaurant business in Chicago, the Chicago suburbs, and he goes to the family in Guatemala and says that he is he would be happy to take um, Guillermo to Chicago and um, let him go to school and work in his um, restaurant to make some money. And the parents are super excited about this. Guillermo is very excited as well. So once Guillermo gets to the U.S., um, the friend of the family takes the passports and all his papers and keeps them. And um, he lives in the restaurant, um, and he's getting paid a dollar a day, if anything. And he works constantly. He works 24-7 practically. Um, he lives there. It's unsanitary. He's monitored very closely. He's not able to leave. And um, he's physically and sexually abused, and he does not attend school. Our next um, person, young lady, is Mia. She's 11 years old. Um, by the time she was five, she was being sexually abused by her grandfather. Um, she ran away from home when she was 11, and she kept thinking her mom was going to come find her. Um, but her mom never did look for her. So she stayed in a lot of houses um, of her friends. She was sofa surfed or whatever we call it. Um, couch surfed. I said it the wrong way. Um, and finally, one of her friends, their mother, decided to take her in. And so Mia's biological mother signed over parental rights um, to this friend's mother. And so this friend's mother became her foster mom. And so this foster mom would force her to have sex with men for money. Um, she would force Mia to take a variety of drugs and drink alcohol. She would force Mia to shoplift. Um, and she threatened Mia with um, abandonment if she complained. And as you can imagine, Mia already feels abandoned by her family. And so she has strong fear of abandonment. Um, she's afraid of stuffed animals. She became afraid of stuffed animals because that was um, one of the symbols of abuse at the hands of her foster mother and her buyers. So what is human trafficking? Um, defined by the federal law, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in the year 2000, um, human trafficking is um, the business of inducing a person to um, perform labor or commercial sex through force, fraud, or coercion. It is important to note, though, even transporting is in here. A person does not have to be moved from one place to the next to be a victim of human trafficking. People are trafficked out of their own homes 
all the time. Um, there is one exception to this law. Um, force, fraud, or coercion does not need to be proven if the victim is under 18 for sex trafficking. So if, um, if um, a person is under 18 and performs a commercial sex act, so um, having sex for money, um, drugs, um, any kind of goods, um, is automatically designed, uh, defined as a victim of human trafficking, regardless of whether force, fraud, or coercion is present. And so what this means is that there is no such thing as a child prostitute. No such thing. Also, legally, um, the juvenile victims... Ah, go. Okay. The Justice for Victims Trafficking Act of 2015 also added some things that were super important for minors. So, um, first of all, it included child pornography or child sexual abuse material as human trafficking and child sexual abuse. Number two, it expanded the definition of child abuse to include human trafficking of children. So, a lot of, you know, in the past it was kind of defined as, um, you know, as someone in um, a position of um, control or power over the child. So, usually a family member um, is, is abusing the child and it's, it's child abuse. But now a trafficker can be um, convicted of child abuse um, under the law. Um, and then the third thing is it penalizes people who patronize or solicit minors for commercial sex, and those are the buyers. And this one's really important because um, these days we're seeing a lot more girls um, and boys who are being lured on social media and contact, being contacted by people they don't know. And what they're doing is they're running away, being sexually exploited by adults, and then maybe coming back home or running away somewhere else. But the point is, in these instances, there is no third-party trafficker, there is no pimp, but nevertheless, these children are being sexually exploited. So, okay. So just some statistics. I do want to mention that statistics are really, really difficult in the world of human trafficking. They're not great. Um, there's not like a, a widely, um, really good defined and international um, definition of human trafficking. And even within the United States, there's no one source of um, human trafficking um, statistics. So kind of give any statistics I give you sort of with a grain of salt. So just hold it really lightly. Obviously, over the next few decades, we'll have a lot better um, statistics. But also, human trafficking is a hidden crime, right? These people, these victims, these traffickers, they're walking in front of your very eyes on the streets, right? Um, and also, humans can be uh, exploited over and over again. Um, some of the girls I've worked with, you know, they had to have sex with men like 12, 15 times a day. So you can imagine how much money uh, that generates and um, how, how easy that is to do, and we'll talk about that more. But um, the global estimates of modern slavery by the Illinois, not the Illinois, excuse me, International Labor Organization estimated that 24.9 million people are trafficked worldwide, and that includes both sex and labor. A third of them are under 18, which is a humongous number, and 72%, mostly girls are sex trafficked, and mostly boys are labor trafficked. That are the statistics we have, but we're pretty sure that you know, boys being like, for example, sex trafficked is underestimated because there's a huge stigma there. Um, and there's also overlap. So some people are exploited both in labor and sex at the same time. So how much is 24 million people? So I looked up some stuff. Average football stadium can see about 60,000 people if it's full. So it's like 416 times the football stadium. The U.S. military has only about 2 million people. So 
12 or 13 times that the size of our U.S. military. So, huge number. It's really hard to wrap our minds around how big these numbers are. Again, a huge number, $150 billion profit. And I did kind of go over why. It's just a really good, yeah. So the percentages, um, they didn't add up to 100. Is it because there was the overlap makes up the percentages? Because 23 and 66. What's the other percentages-wise? Yes. Um, some of them are undetermined and some of them are overlap. Yeah. That's a good question. Okay. So $150 billion. Um, so just one statistic, like some one statistic I can give you. Um, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL together had a profit of $38 billion a year. So this is $150 billion. Now, of course, these sports teams are only in America, and we're talking worldwide here. But again, just to get a vague idea of how much that is. So does this happen in America? Um, definitely yes. Um, there's an estimate of 403,000 people living in sex and labor exploitation here. Confirmed, um, the U.S. Justice Department confirmed um, sorry, excuse me, say that of confirmed victims of sex trafficking, most of them are U.S. citizens and most of them are younger than 25, so most of them are young. Um, of their confirmed victims of labor trafficking, most of them were immigrants and older. That being said, um, you know, people think that maybe the, the people who are foreign nationals who are being trafficked here in the United States came here... Um, without proper documentation, um, but it turns out that 79% or so of foreign nationals who are trafficked here actually came through legal means, through a work visa, education visa, those kind of um, legal means. And then when they come here, they are tricked and manipulated into being trafficked. So here's a picture of the United States. This is... Um, this comes from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is one good source of um, statistics. And it shows um, the places where tips have come in um, from 2007 when it started to 2019. And the biggest thing I want you to get out of this is that it happens everywhere. Um, you know, if you look at your state or where you live, you can see that it happens there. Um, two other places that are starting to have um, statistics are the FBI. Um, they're starting to hold statistics, and then the um, National Child Abuse um, Database, um, which is tracking only sex abuse up to age, sorry, sexual sex trafficking up to the age 24. So they just started doing them last year, so we'll see what kind of comes to that. Now, this one's interesting because um, a lot of times um, the hotline calls, this, to be called in, it has to be A, somebody is recognizing that somebody is being trafficked or that they or themselves are being trafficked, and number one, that they are calling in to this hotline in particular. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, when we have a lot more data on this. Okay, the reason I have this picture is because, you know, if I asked you to pick out the trafficker in this picture, you would not be able to. You'd be like, they all look the same. And that's the truth. So traffickers look like us. Victims look like us. They don't look particularly downtrodden necessarily. Uh, traffickers don't look necessarily evil. They look like us. Um, and trafficking happens with every age, race, gender. It can happen in any socioeconomic status. <coughs> 
So where does trafficking occur? Um, again, this is from the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The biggest thing I want you to get out of this is that it can happen in places that we may patronize on a weekly basis, right? Stores, restaurants, places that we see, uh, traveling sales crews, um, and then sex trafficking, and there's a lot of overlap between sex trafficking and labor trafficking. So you can see here, combined sex and labor trafficking um, are mostly in these places um, uh, by the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Um, illicit activities means um, when the potential victim or the victim is forced to do illegal, illicit businesses like um, selling drugs, financial scams, gang activity, that kind of thing. That's number two there. So who is at risk? Um, I'm interested to see, can any of you spot risks in Guillermo's story here? And just yell them out or raise your hand or whatever you think. She said parents being uninformed about the risks. That's right. That. So we see that a lot with these youngsters, especially um, unaccompanied um, immigrants. The hope of going somewhere where they can make money for the family. And that's part of the parents being uninformed, un too. They think this is actually a really great opportunity. And remember, this is a friend of the family who's doing this. So it's not just people or strangers that you don't know that are trafficking other people. People are trafficking people they know. Okay, so he's young. He may not speak English. Um, he, um, you know, uh, may not know the culture here. He doesn't know anybody here. He's not able to go to school, so he doesn't have the opportunity for, like, a teacher or somebody, a coach, to sort of identify what's going on with him. And this is Mia. Um, do you guys have any idea of what kind of um, risk factors are going on with her? Previous sexual Absolutely, and we find that with most of our victims of, of sex trafficking, like 90-some percent of them have a history of sexual abuse. That's a huge one. Can but you repeat that again? Say it again? Yes, so like 90% of people who have been sex trafficked have a history of child sexual abuse. 90%? Yeah, it's a big number. Wow. Yeah. Ran away Definitely. Running away, family dysfunction. Runaways are is a being a runaway or homeless as a youth is a really big risk factor for being exploited and taken advantage of, as you can imagine. Foster yes, foster children have a very high risk for being um, exploited in traffic. Sadly, Does somebody else say something. No. Okay, great. All right, that's a great. So this is a really busy slide, but basically I just wanted to show you that there are many, many layers of risk factors and vulnerabilities um, that people can have now to being exploited. Um, and obviously, you, as you would imagine, the more of these risk factors and vulnerabilities you have, the more likely you are to fall into some kind of thing like trafficking. Um, however, it does go to show that there are um, a lot of various reasons why somebody might be tricked or forced into being exploited sexually or with labor. Um, 
looking at the individual one, um, just the history of maltreatment, which we brought up, or early adversity that is especially unaddressed, um, substance use or misuse, homeless, runaway, throwaway, those are big ones. Um, system involved means like either, you know, with uh, child protective services or law enforcement, juvenile, kids in the juvenile justice system also are at high risk for being trafficked and exploited. Um, mental health problems, disabilities is a big one. Um, a lot of um, kids with disabilities are at risk for all sorts of things, including being exploited. Um, truancy is a really big one. So if somebody is missing school a lot, that is a huge red flag. We've had, girl, we've had girls um, get dropped off at school like normal in the morning, have to miss school because they're picked up by their trafficker to do their work, their illegal work, and then they get dropped back off at school to go home on the bus and act like a normal kid um, to their parents. Um, LGBTQ um, has a high risk um, for also being exploited and gang involvement. Okay, and children are especially um, vulnerable, right? Because they're, they're immature, right? In, in, in an appropriate way. Um, they have poor judgment. They're impulsive. You think about all the teenagers you know, or you think about yourself as a teenager. I did some pretty stupid things as a teenager. I don't want to repeat. But, um, but I got away with them, right? I turned out okay, but not everybody turns out okay, right? Um, sexual curiosity. Limited life experience. Basically, not knowing how to navigate certain things. If you get in trouble, who do you call? You know, you, you tell your, your drug dealer down the street. Yeah, I mean, you just, you know, you don't know who to call. You rely on the wrong people. Um, desire for independence, testing boundaries. Um, they're still learning their coping skills. They're still trying to learn who they are, what they stand for, um, risk-taking behaviors. Peer pressure is a big one, right? So you think about, um, especially males who are abused, um, you don't hear about that as much, especially if it's sexual abuse. Um, and it's, a lot of it's because of stigma, right? They don't want to come out as looking weak or a sissy or that they've been abused in that way. And it's a big problem. Um, being dependent on the adults in their lives, this is a really huge issue, right? Because they're dependent on their adults for housing, for clothing, for food, to go to school, to be able to do anything, right? How much internet they can look at. Um, and they... So this is why foster kids especially, so the foster system is not perfect. We know this, and we know that there are many not-so-great foster parents out there. Okay, just terrible foster parents. There are some great ones as well. But the point is, they, these kids are dependent upon um, the adults in their lives, and that includes their teachers, it includes their coaches, it includes anybody who else is in their life. But they need their adults to believe in them, number one and to be able to do something about what's going on with them, if they even know it. So high internet, social media use. Um, um, definitely social media has sort of leveled the playing field. Um, a lot more people are vulnerable, vulnerable now, even if you have risk factors. Social media, um, they get into your living room and they... Um, They um, reach out to these, these youth and these children who don't know um, the boundaries. Um, so social media, oftentimes we think about with girls and boys. The boys were often thinking about gaming, right? And these traffickers are really, really patient. They can groom a kid for months and months, right? So um, 
they can come online and pretend that they're a boyfriend or they, they really like somebody and they just um, want to have a relationship with them. Or they can come online with um, a kid who's gaming and just act like another kid and um, just really befriend them and become um, sort of a, a daily fixture in kids' lives. Um, desire to fit in, normal teen conflict um, with their parents and caretakers, poor health literacy, and um, no money. Okay, and again, I brought this up. Um, internet is very interesting um, because not only does it level the playing field, as I said, in terms of um, capturing sort of a wider variety of, of our um, children and youth, but also you can also trade human beings on the internet, right? So you can... You can um, lure and groom them, and then you can exploit them all online. And the internet has just made it so easy. Okay, so this data is taken from the National Human Trafficking Hotline again. And this is just to show a little bit of the, the breakdown um, of the beginning of sex or labor trafficking. So you can see sex trafficking is the top um, line there, the one with the big peak. And um, here you can see there's a, there's a peak sort of in the teenage years of when sex trafficking began. Um, labor trafficking tends to be a little bit more even across the, the way. Again, take these kind of with a grain of salt. Um, the child welfare data um, said that their cases of sex trafficking were ages 14 and 17, but these were the ages that it was indicated, meaning it was, it was um, substantiated, they found it. So a lot of the kids who are being trafficked already have been trafficked for years. Um, where I work at Reclaim 13, um, the youngest kid we had in our program was age 10. Um, but we know that some of these girls that came to us when they were like 13, 14, 15, they actually were exploited be way before them, um, before their teens. Okay, this one's a, um, a study out of Covenant House, which is a kind of an interesting study. Um, Covenant House runs drop-in centers, um, shelters, they give food, um, crisis care for youth from 14 to 20. And they're in, um, this is a 10-city study all across the United States. Um, and they saw that for their drop-in youth, so keep in mind these are sort of um, high-risk kids, right? So they're homeless, they're runaways, they may be using drugs. 24% um, of them um, had experienced sex trafficking and 13% experienced labor trafficking. You can see here that um, kids in the foster care system have a high risk for being trafficked. And then LGBTQ as well, above straight youth. And then this is the Minnesota Student um, Survey. So um, the state of Minnesota um, sent questionnaires to ninth and 11 year old, I'm sorry, ninth grade and 11th graders in the entire state, all the school districts, um, and all of them participated. Um, so they had a, a sample size of 80,000 kids, and 88% answered these questions. And one of the question was, one of the questions was, have you ever traded sex or sexual activity to receive money, food, drugs, alcohol, a place to stay, or anything else? 1.4 does not seem high, but that's like 5,000 kids. So, and they also did these questionnaires in juvenile correction facilities, foster care, and people with unstable housing, and you can see that their numbers are a lot higher. Is it representative of the United States? It's hard to say, but I think this is just something that we need to be very much aware of, because I doubt all of these 5,000 kids have come out and told anybody um, about what is going on and what they need that they're trading sex for. Are they trading sex with peers? It's very possible. But um, some of them might be adults and being exploited. 
Okay, so how does this happen? I'm going to go real quickly. So traffickers are really, really savvy. They're really, really patient. Um, they, they target their victims. They, they look for, for vulnerability. And, and the truth is, we all have vulnerabilities. And we saw on that long list that some people have a lot more vulnerabilities than, than um, other people do. And some vulnerabilities are a lot heavier than other people's, right? So definitely taking this with um, all the context in mind. But everybody is vulnerable for some reason. Um, you think about um, youth. You think about they want to be loved. They want to fit in. They want to feel beautiful. Um, they, they want money to buy things they want. Um, they have low self-esteem. Um, they're, they're not getting along with their parents, right? So even kids with parents who are generally good don't get along with their parents all the time. Um, so they target their victims. They're very um, intentional about it. And then they gain the trust, right? So I'm the only one who loves you. I understand you. Your mom and dad don't understand you. I'm going to take care of you. I can do this. Or within the case of Guillermo, you know, this friend of the family established trust. He's like, I'm your friend. I'm your countryman. I know how this is. I own a successful business. So they, they establish trust so that the victim feels um, like they want to put themselves out for this trafficker. And then they meet their needs. So in Guillermo's sense, you know, he met the need of bringing Guillermo to the United States, giving him a job, right? Or sometimes it's love that somebody wants. It's um, a relationship that somebody wants. Um, and then they start to isolate them. They meet their needs and they isolate them, saying, you know, again, I am the one who meets your needs. I am the one who's going, going, you know, doing the long haul for you. I am the one who has a relationship with you, and I am the one who's going to take care of you. So it's very, very psychological. Um, a lot of what keeps people um, with their abusers, and the same thing with domestic abuse, most of it is psychological. Most of these people are not chained to the wall or locked in a basement, even though that does happen. And then they normalize it. This is just the way of life. This is just the way we have to do things. This is how we do it in this country. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to take care of you. Um, and then they gradually um, get isolated uh, from their loved ones and their families if they have them um, so that the, the, the trafficker is the one who is trusted, most trusted. Um, and then slowly, slowly the trafficker will start to exploit um, the youth or child, um, but by then the youth has already created a bond with the trafficker. So, you don't need to read this, but the biggest thing to show you on this um, sort of power, wheel of power and control, is that most of the power and control is psychological. So it's threats, it's um, relationships, so a lot of, you know, um, girls who are being sex trafficked think that their relationship is a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship when it's not at all to the trafficker. So most of the um, control is psychological. Okay, I just like this slide because top five points of access for health. Um, here we all have something to do with health, and the health services is the third one. So I think we have a really, really great opportunity to identify people who are being victimized and then to help them get help, sort of to get them on the right road or at least be able to offer help and be the first step. Okay, I just stuck a fun picture in there just to sort of lighten up the mood a little bit. <laughs> 
sorry. <laughs> Heavy topic. Okay, so real quickly, I'm going to talk about the fight, flight, freeze, the stress response, um, just so we can kind of understand a little bit why um, trafficking victims um, do what they do or behave the way they do, right? So you think about um, something scary happens, and you're, there's a part in your brain called the amygdala, which is, which is the part that reads stress. Um, and threat, and so then it goes bonkers, and then it goes to all your bodily functions, right? And then your heart rate goes up, um, glucose is released into your system, so you can run or fight or do what you need to do. Your, you know, your vision becomes laser focused. And the biggest thing about it is your frontal cortex, which is the part that like thinks reasonably and makes the decisions. It's like poof, it shuts down, right? So you are just there to survive the situation, right? And in people who don't have big trauma responses, once the threat is over. Everything goes back, you know, your frontal cortex comes back, and you're able to make some good decisions again. But in the midst of your trauma or the threat, you are not necessarily making the best decisions. You are just trying to survive, right? Um, so now we look at trauma, um, sort of extreme stress. So someone who's been in chronic stress, afraid for their life, afraid for their safety, afraid for their family's safety. Um, and repeated stress, it alters the brain, and it gives us a response that is primed by trauma, right? So any little bit of thing might set somebody off, right? So if you see somebody come in through your emergency room, and um, let's say the MA who checks them in is wearing the same cologne as their trafficker wore, boom, this kid goes bonkers, right? And you're like, why is this kid going bonkers? They're such a brat. They're so annoying. They don't want you to forget about him, you know. And I think um, a lot of times we just don't know these traumas. We don't know what set this person off. Nor can that person even verbalize it. They probably don't even know what set them off. They just know that there was something that made their brain just go off. And back then, it was a good response, right? If they smelled that cologne, they knew it was their trafficker, and they got to put themselves in a, a safe position. So behaviors have a purpose. Um, and sometimes you don't know what that purpose was way back then, which was supposed to be a safety issue, um, that now is not really a safety issue. Um, but there's a lot of trauma um, responses that people have that um, I think if we're just aware of, then we can sort of try to address those and not react or um, take it personally. Um, so, brains that are um, primed by trauma, they are in, unable to cope with um, daily stress. So, sometimes something you're like, wow, that's not really a big deal, but somebody goes bonkers over it. They have difficulty trusting other people, so when they come to see you in your clinic, your office, your pharmacy, wherever you may be, they're going to look at you like everybody else, and they're going to be like, I can't trust you. You're an adult just like all the other people who have hurt me in my life. Uh, they may have difficulty managing their, managing their emotions, so they may be like a total roller coaster with their emotions. Um, they have memory and attention deficits, so they may not remember um, everything their trafficker did to them or what they ate for lunch, sometimes I don't remember, but that's not a trauma effect. But they just have a lot of um, difficulties with memory and attention, um, sorry, memory um, details. So sometimes you might ask them, you know, um, what happened? And they might literally not be able to tell you. Or maybe they tell you in little snippets um, or little pieces or out of order. And so that's why a lot of times you might get a history from them that's out of order. Or like it sounds really like 
jumped together, you know, and you're like, this person's talking nonsense, but actually it's how they remember things. Um, you can have a lot of behavior changes, um, and then, you know, it can come out in your body, so health impairments, somatic things, headaches, stomach aches, a lot of uh, chronic pain and um, physical complaints. So I like to say these things just because sometimes these are your, your quote-unquote difficult patients. Um, we had a girl, she was a teenager, she had to go to the ER for something, um, and when the nurse said to take off your clothes and put on the gown, she completely flipped out. And, you know, if you go to the emergency room or your doctor's office, you know you have to do that, right? So most of us are like, okay, I don't like it, but I'm going to do it, right? She totally flipped out for like two hours, she locked the door. It was, um, it was a really bad situation, but it was a trauma response in her, and she literally could not function or think properly because her frontal cortex was closed down. Um, okay, so environmental indicators. This one's super important. The reason I like to bring this one up is because anybody from the reception to the security who's standing by the door to the people you know who are putting supplies away, radiology lab, anybody, um, can notice these things. And in fact, I would say that um, if sometimes it's the people in the situations where nobody's paying attention. Like, for example, if you're a reception and you're sitting at the front desk, you see everybody who comes through your door, right? And they're just sitting there waiting in your, in your waiting room. And then many times they're stressed out, right? And so you get to see behavior that they don't even think that the receptionist is looking at them, right? So it's really important in terms of human trafficking or other trauma that, like, Everybody in your staff gets trained in this because they're going to be on their best behavior when they get to you if you're interviewing them or doing something with them or taking care of them. Um, so a very controlling person, this is a big one. Somebody speaks for them, talks for them. If it's a different language, they'll say, I'm the translator. Um, it could be even a family member, so they could say, I'm her uncle. Um, I'm her boyfriend. And she might even say, this is my boyfriend, yes. Um, but no, she's got to speak for herself if she can. Um, lack of ID, no control over ID, wearing inappropriate clothing for the climate, so they're trying to cover up um, injuries and things that have been done to them. Lying about their age, a lot of the girls um, who've been trafficked say that they're a lot older than they are. Minimal personal possessions, um, paying cash. Unsure of their address, so a lot of victims get um, moved around a lot, so sometimes they don't know where they are, they don't know what state they're in, they don't know what time it is, what day it is, or some of them are kept under such close supervision that they really don't know these things anyway, even if they haven't been moved. And then unexpectedly expensive goods, like I would say these are the, the ones who are in their grooming process, you know, they get like a fancy purse or something like that. Um, Behavioral indicators, a lot of these come out in the trauma response, so overly fearful, very submissive. Um, they can be hostile. Um, they can protect the person who is hurting them or minimize um, abuse. They may not answer your questions. They may show signs or symptoms of depression, anxiety, and PTSD, which research has shown are the top three mental health issues with um, people who have been trafficked. Um, scripted or inconsistent stories or changing histories. It may be the trauma response, like I said to you, or it could be something where they're afraid to tell you the story. Maybe they're lying about something, but because they're trying to protect somebody or something or themselves. Um, injuries inconsistent with history. Um, as I mentioned, truancy um, is a big one. 
the frequent flyers, so someone that comes into your office, your clinic, your space again and again and again, especially if it's a repeated issue, if it's a chronic condition that they're not taking care of, um, if it's... Um, always to wanting to check for sexually transmitted infections, if it's for um, chronic pregnancy testing, things like that. Or just a lot of somatic complaints, meaning physical complaints that um, have no physical source that you can find, but mostly are psychological. And those are real complaints, but it's just because they've had some psychological trauma and it's coming out in their body. So um, sexualized behavior, sexual knowledge um, beyond what you expect, right? So you wouldn't expect like a six-year-old to know what intercourse is, right? That's just wrong. So um, and just being able to use language um, that you think is just not really fitting or appropriate. Um, and then disappearing for long periods of time. So this is what I was mentioning with the, the kids who are um, texting with um, exploiters and sort of running away from home for two weeks and then just coming back again. And you're like, where have you been? I don't know, visiting a friend. So disappearing for a long period of time. And we, we see this a lot with our girls. Um, so just a couple of quotes from um, people who have been exploited. Most of the time we don't talk because we are terrified. We are taught not to talk in public. And I would even argue taught is kind of a nice word. There, they're probably threatened not to talk in public. Most of the time we look dirty and stinky. Um, I was really dirty most of the time. And, you know, and this is where I like to bring up, you know, just sort of getting past our own um, implicit biases. You know, I know that if one of my patients looks really dirty and smells really bad, I have to really overcome that, right? And I'm totally admitting it, you know, it's just that I have to overcome that to be able to treat this person like a person like I would treat somebody else who was clean and not dirty, right? So we all have our little biases. You know, if you see someone with track marks versus you see someone who doesn't look like they use drugs at all, right, are you going to treat them differently? You see someone who um, has limited English or seems to have poor education, are you going to treat them differently from somebody who has, you know, who seems to be fluent and eloquent, right? And it goes both ways, right? You might treat the person badly if they don't speak well, but also you might ignore the person who speaks well and be like, well, they come from a good family, nothing could happen to them, right? So kind of, <laughs> you just have to be super aware um, just of our own biases. Okay, so real quickly, um, in terms of interviewing patients or taking a history of patients, um, you definitely want to interview the client alone. Um, a lot of times that controlling person won't leave, and you, you do want to see if you can come up with an excuse. I usually say if you can sort of say at least it's policy, so because a lot of times if you sort of alert the trafficker that you are a little bit onto them or suspicious to them, then your patient, when they go home, when they leave your facility, they are in danger that the trafficker might hit them, abuse them, just do something really bad. So definitely want to try to interview them alone. Um, you want to use a trained interpreter. So see if your facility has a trained interpreter. You don't want to use the person with them as an interpreter because obviously they may have nefarious purposes. Limits of confidentiality. So usually the biggest thing with that is mandated reporting, which um, comes into play when we are talking about minors. And then just making sure basic needs are met, right? So sometimes um, they come in and um, they're wearing, like, nothing. They're wearing these tiny little clothes and um, 
and sometimes they don't want to be wearing that. In fact, most of the time they don't want to be wearing that. So, you know, you can say, are you cold? Do you need a blanket? Do you need water? If they look malnourished, just give them a little something um, that you can think, just a basic need. Um, asking question, questions on a need-to-know basis. Um, definitely, there are things you need to know to be able to treat your patient, but there are some things you don't need to know. And um, asking questions that are not um, necessary can re-traumatize the patient, and so you want to try and um, minimize that. As well as children, sometimes they have to get a forensic interview, and so you don't want to be talking about too many things because the forensic interview is super important legally in terms of getting the information for their, their legal case um, and their investigation. Being non-judgmental, I usually say, you know, fix my face. Because sometimes, like with a friend, if a friend's telling you something terrible or disgusting, you will make a terrified, or not terrified, horrified, or disgusted face, right? But I would caution you to not use this with victims of trauma, because sometimes they will sort of internalize that sort of reaction. They will think that you are disgusted with them, that you are horrified of them. So definitely just keep your face as neutral as possible. Cultural sensitivity is super important. And then just staying calm and listening as much as possible. Um, if anybody wants these slides, I can give them to you. Um, but right here, uh, there is one screening tool for youth sex trafficking. Um, and there's six questions. And if you get two positive answers, um, it is considered a positive screen. And then there's follow-up questions for it. And this is the only one we have right now. Um, it's not great for boys yet, and it's not validated with foreign nationals. But I have a feeling, you know, we're, we're working on these right now and trying to get more screening tools that are... Um, are reliable. And these are the follow-up questions. This is another screening tool that they use, not just in healthcare, but um, you can see the categories here. And they are, they're asking about housing, caregivers, prior abuse or trauma, health, um, environment, relationships, um, trauma, coercion, and exploitation. So this is another resource that um, facilities can use, especially like social work type facilities. This is a really good um, tool. So again, if anybody wants, just come up um, and talk to me afterwards. Um, okay, and so there's a couple ways I like to look at instead of necessarily having to use a screening tool, or maybe you're not sure you need to use that screening tool. I usually like to use framing questions. So framing questions are questions you start off with, um, just sort of like um, to ease into things. So you you, you say um, you say a question that sort of say it sounds like you are asking everybody these questions. So you're sort of normalizing the experience. You're saying, oh, I ask everybody these questions. You know, I would like to ask you some questions related to your day-to-day -day activities because what you do for a living can sometimes impact your health. So this kind of like just kind of a holistic question. So if you're unafraid, if if you're afraid that you haven't established rapport um, with the patient yet, um, this, these are some ways to sort of get towards that. Um, another way to do abuse framing questions is to ask about things that you see on the patient, right? So if you see a tattoo on a patient and you're like, oh, that's an interesting tattoo, what's that about, right? Because a lot of trafficking victims are tattooed by their traffickers. Um, um, you look really tired. You know, when was the last time you got to sleep? Do you sleep in a bed? Um, things like that. And how many hours do you get to sleep? So just questions that are just sort of... Um, approaching them from a general standpoint and then trying to get to the point later on and establishing trust there. Um, 
This is the HEADS assessment. I like to use this um, because um, we use this in pediatrics all the time, and we use it for teens just to sort of get to their social history. So um, just some questions you can ask that are a little bit more trafficking specific if you wanted to. Home environment. Where do you live? Who do you live with? Um, do you live? Do you sleep in the same place every night, or you know, um, do you have trouble finding housing? Have you ever had to do something to find housing? Um, have you ever had to? Have you ever run away from home or thought about running away from home? Um, education. Where do you go to school? Do you go to school? How is school? You know, um, because I said truancy is a really, really big red flag. So you want to know if they're going to school. You want to ask them about their job. Do you have a job? Do you like your job? Do you get paid for your job? How often do you get paid? Do you get paid what the boss said they pay you? Um, eating habits, do you get to eat? How often do you eat? What do you eat? Who gives you food? How do you get your food? Um, do you owe anyone money? Have you ever traded sex for money, for food, for drugs, a place to stay, or just to be safe so or somebody else you love can stay safe? Um, have you ever, have, has anyone ever asked you to have sex with somebody else? Um, has anyone ever taken a sexual picture of you or asked for a sexual picture of you? And they may say, yeah, it's my boyfriend, who's not really a boyfriend, right? Um, have you ever had problems with the police? Has anyone given you drugs that you didn't know about or forced you to take drugs or alcohol? Um, we had a girl, actually it was Mia, my, my example, um, you know, the, the mom would force her to do drugs and alcohol, and she, and she would come into her family practitioner, and she said she'd always be high and, and often, um, what's the word, drunk when she came to see her um, primary care physician. And, and her primary care physician never asked her about it. They would only say, you know, you shouldn't take so many drugs. And um, this primary care physician kept taking information from the foster mom, who was the abuser. So, you know, the big thing is, is asking the, the kid, right? She said to me, if I'm old enough to talk to and to talk, then you should talk to me, right? And that goes for a six-year-old, right? Of course, the conversation is different, and the way you're going to ask and converse with them is different, but you always talk to the child, always. Um, so... Um, Suicide and depression, um, so many of our girls come in with the chief complaint of some kind of mental health issue, anxiety, depression, what have you. And so that is really, really important to, to ask for. Um, and then to safety. Are you safe? Do you feel safe? Do you have a safe place to stay? Does anyone make you do something that makes you feel unsafe? Okay. No, I'm running out of time. I'm really sorry. Physical indicators, so delayed care, untreated chronic conditions, malnourishment. A lot of times they are not allowed to see any kind of healthcare provider or anything. Poor hygiene, substance use, um, significant dental problems. So if anybody's like dental here, um, you definitely can play a big, big role in terms of um, finding some of these patients. Um, as you would expect, multiple pregnancy abortions, workplace injuries, bruising, burns, injuries in various stages of healing, um, traumatic injuries, like occupational type injuries. Um, like, where did you get that? You know, oh, I was working with a machine. And, you know, sometimes if you dig a little bit, you can find out how unsafe the conditions are and how they're forced to, to work. Um, that puts them in a dangerous situation. So they may not identify them. In fact, most of them will not identify themselves. So you can ask all the right questions. And I just want to give you this caveat because we all want to help people. 
But sometimes we had a girl, every time she went to the emergency room, which was plenty, they all asked good questions, and she always denied everything. So it's sad, but the truth is you are not always going to be the one to elicit such information from them. But you still have a role. You still are, you have a high index of suspicion, and you offer them help. If you are in trouble, you can come back here. If you are in trouble, I have some resources. And you offer that ability for them to even at least let it percolate, that somebody wants to help them. And maybe it's like the third, the 13th, the 50th, the 60th person that approaches them that they might actually be like, yes, actually, I do want help. So they feel so shame, ashamed. They, are, they feel so guilty. Sometimes they have cre- um, committed crimes. Um, while they're being trafficked, and so they feel like a criminal, and they're afraid they're going to be put in jail. They're super afraid of their trafficker. Um, Kids like Guillermo might be afraid of um, deportation, being sent back to their family. Um, And honestly, sometimes these um, unaccompanied youth um, who have jobs here, their situation here, even though it's terrible to us by American standards, actually might be better to them. They might perceive them as better, right? Because some of these kids are fleeing very dangerous countries, um, countries with poverty, poverty, and they're being abused and their families being abused, and all they want to do is do something to help their family, right? So that's a very tricky situation. Um, we've had um, um, unaccompanied immigrants who are these teenagers who were being treated just that way. They were being exploited by American standards. They really, really, really wanted to just make money for their family and send it back. So this is something that sort of has to be parsed out over time. Um, lack of understanding of healthcare, emotional trauma bonding. So this is a big one, um, and this happens in like um, domestic violence, right? You're always like, why does an abused person stay with their abuser? They are psychologically bonded to these people, right? Because even if this abuser do terrible things to them. They also do great things for them sometimes, right? They give them a place to stay. They love them sometimes, right? Some of these kids come from very stark backgrounds, and this is better than nothing. You know, somebody's taking care of me. Somebody's giving me a roof over my head. I get to eat sometimes. I have money to spend on the cool things. And then they don't trust us or anybody. So basically, um, they may not want to disclose or they may not want to escape. And our job is just to identify them and offer them hope. Mandatory reporting. Any minor who suspect of being trafficked, as I said before, does fall under the umbrella of, of uh, child abuse. So definitely <coughs> want to report them. You want to tell the kid, though, that you are going to call the, the authorities, though. You want to keep that bond of trust. National Human Trafficking Hotline is a great resource. They can give you uh, local resources about where you live. They can tell you what to do. If you're like, I don't know what to do, they can stay on the line with you and tell you what to do. You can tell them a, a theoretical um, a theoretical patient, and they can say, okay, this is you know the type of questioning I'd ask. This is what I might do. This is the kind of resources I might do. Or they might be like, yeah, call the authorities. Anybody who works with kids, we want to try to prevent any of this from happening, so you want to make sure that you're aware of the vulnerabilities, you're screening your high-risk populations, and you're giving anticipatory guidance. So that means talking to them about healthy relationships, talking them about the possibility of violence and what violence is, what, um, and uh, Internet safety. 
if they have a job, talking them to about a healthy job and, and rights and expectations, and then having resources in your office or facility that you can actually give out to them. So Guillermo actually was res rescued in a sting. There was an anonymous tip, um, and the um, law enforcement came in and um, found, and Guillermo was not the only one there, obviously, or not surprisingly, but that was being exploited, and so he was um, rescued. Mia also, interestingly, was rescued in an FBI sting, and um, she went to a program, she went to our program, and um, she has graduated high school. She was tiny little emaciated malnourished girl when she came to us who was afraid of everything. She wouldn't even go to the mall. She wouldn't go shopping. And how many teenagers don't like to go shopping? Now she can go to a store and not have a panic attack. Now she has a stuffed animal on her bed. She is attending college. Um, she's still got a lot to work through, but uh, she's, she's doing great. So William Wilberforce, as you know, he fought the fight against um, the African slave trade or slavery in the UK. And he said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never stop saying again that you did not know. So I welcome any questions. And um, I have my, I think I have my email address. Well, if you want my information, I'm happy to give to you. Yeah, so you said if you report for minors, how do you do it in such a way Yes. So that is a very difficult thing, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because, like you're uh, intimating, um, if you try to help, if you force help on people um, that are not ready for it, the trafficker, oftentimes, they are very dangerous people. And what I would say is if it truly is a dangerous situation, um, I would um, get them to a place of safety. So if you're in a hospital um, or a health clinic, um, I would, um, you would call the police and you would call DCFS or Child Protective Services and you would get them to a place of safety. If you can't, um, then you would want someone to sort of bring them to a place of safety. So like the emergency room or something like that. Um, but the sad thing is, no, it's not sad, but you do have to report it. So if it was an adult, you could kind of talk to the adults and see if you could work with it a little bit, right? With the kids, you really have to report it, so you, you have to be creative sometimes. But hospitals are oftentimes safe places. Um, and you just keep them in your facility if you need to. If you need to call security, if you need to call the police to come, if you think the trafficker is there and is dangerous, you call the police to come come to your building, and they will. Yeah, I would say if they are, if you feel like they are going to be harmed when they leave, you definitely do your best to keep them where you where they are at the time with you. Um, some kids are being trafficked and they come with, with their parents, and you know that the parents' house is a safe place, even though the kids have been doing stuff outward, outside. There, there might be some cases where you do send them home. Um, there are some cases where you report them, but you send them home because you don't feel like they're in imminent danger. They have a safe place to go. But that's exactly right. I like that you brought that up because they do need to have a safe place to go if you're going to discharge them. Thank you. When they do get rescued, where do they go? <laughs> that's a very good question. So, um, this is a very difficult thing because there are not enough 
places for them to go. Um, there are not enough beds in um, emergency housing places. Um, some of them end up going to juvenile justice just to keep them safe. Although um, most states have something called a safe harbor law of some sorts, where um, kids who are caught in um, sex trafficking um, are diverted towards social services and not deemed criminals, so they don't go towards um, law enforcement that direction, but they go towards social services. But sometimes the only safe place to bring them would be like a juvenile facility, which is not great. Um, the kids that are fortunate, um, they either get put in a foster home, but the foster home has to be very, very high level, um, or they get two programs, such as my program, where we, um, we are in an undisclosed area with lots and lots of security, um, and we put in place a lot of things so that they don't run away, because a lot of these girls do want to run away. Um, so that is an excellent question, and that is what we really need to work on, because it's really difficult to place kids who have no place to go. I will say some hospitals will hospitalize them for a few days, so that the social worker has time to sort of figure out where they can place this girl. Or boy, excuse me. I totally don't mean to leave out boys because I know what happens to boys. Why are foster homes high risk? Yeah, that's a really good question. Foster homes are high risk for a lot of things. So first of all, um, kids who are in the foster care system have um, a lot of history of trauma to begin with, right? Because there's a reason why they're actually being brought out of their homes. Because I would say most child protective services try to keep the kids with their family. So it's got to be pretty serious to even take the kid out of a home. So being take out of your, taken out of your home already is traumatizing, but then these kids probably have other trauma issues as well. So um, when you go, when you are a foster kid, you already have a lot of background um, trauma that might make you behave in more risky ways. Um, a lot of foster kids are just chronic runaways, right? And then so, so they're very hard a lot of times um, to handle as parents. And I think sometimes, you know, um, I, I was a foster mom. And sometimes, you know, you think you're going and you're going to take care of some beautiful child. But this child comes to you with all, all kinds of emotional problems. And they're very difficult to parent. And so I think even parents who have good intentions have a very difficult time parenting. So there may be a lot of conflict there. And I, I just have to say it, I think there are a lot of bad foster parents out there. Uh, there are a lot of foster parents out there with nefarious purposes or at the very best neglectful purposes. Um, and um, Child Protective Services, I would say in every state, are underfunded. And so there's not enough workers, there's not enough funding, and so there's not a lot of supervision um, by the social services that are supposed to look over these kids who are in foster homes. Because really it's the state who is the parent and not the foster parent legally. Right. So does that answer your question? Some of it. Okay. Another Did question would be is, uh, has the incidence of perpetration increased? Because of COVID, maybe? Is that what you mean? No, I'm just talking about as a whole. Mm, that is a good question. I don't think I can answer that with, the, with anything supported from literature. Um, I personally think this kind of slavery has existed ever since mankind has existed. Um, Trafficking has been mm, around, right? But in, ter in terms of culture, you know, in terms of how we accept things and what we think is legal and illegal and good and bad, I think that has changed over time. But I do think it's in human nature for us to do things like this as a, as a people. That's my best guess.
that's a great question. And a lot of it um, has to do with um, when you look at all these risk factors, what are the distributions of different demographics in the, all these risk factors, right? Like poverty, um, abuse at home, you know, things like that. Um, in terms of foreign nationals and um, Americans, um, there was a study by the U.S. Justice Department saying that most sex trafficked victims that they found um, were American and most labor trafficked victims that they found in their study were foreign nationals. Um, that being said, something like 70-some percent of foreign nationals who come into this um, this country to work um, are here by legal means. So they actually have received like the work visa or whatever. Um, it's just that after they've come here, they've been exploited just because they don't know how the system works. So not all of them are sort of illegal immigrants, as, you know, like you said. In terms of, um, oh, demographics. Yeah, um, there are definitely a higher number of black and Hispanics in, um, in being, who are trafficked. Um, there are some whites um, and some Asians. Asians tend to be lower on, on the demographic scale, but you know, I, I we'll see what happens with that. I know that um, Jennifer has worked with you know people from China, and we think about in terms of um, um, spas and massage parlors and all those Asian parlors, right? I, I don't think those people are being counted, right? So. Um, those are some statistics, but I don't know how accurate they are. Yeah. But I, I think the biggest thing is to look at the risk factors and look at the demographics from there and kind of go from there, too. Uh, I know this is a little bit Yeah, thank you. So the question was about training. Oh, yeah. The question was about trainings online that you can take, and that's an excellent question. There, there are some really, really good trainings. One is by HEAL. It stands for, let's see, it's H-E-A-L, all in capitals. It stands for, I actually don't remember what it stands for, but um, it's a healthcare <coughs> website um, for trafficking specifically. Um, and then there's another one called SOAR, S-O-A-R, that again is an acronym for something. Stop, observe, Ask and respond. And that is uh, put out, I believe, nationally by the government, right? And um, it is also specifically about trafficking and um, healthcare and also other <coughs> industries as well. Um, those are two really good ones. Um, Christian Medical Dental Association, um, which is where I'm from, um, we have an eight module um, CME. If, if you need um, credits for it, um, for trafficking as well, uh, training for trafficking. And there are more, but, um, but yeah, those are some three really good ones. Well, thank you guys. Um, if you have any questions for later, or you want the slides, or you want um, my information, I'm glad to share them with you. Thank you for being here.